people today are a lot more sophisticated than those ancient pagans who worshipped idols and things that they had carved out of wood, things that they had carved out of stone, right? You may be thinking, we have no idols. And yet this second commandment, as we study our series, The Timeless Truths, our second week in the Ten Commandments, we may be thinking, that doesn't apply to me. I, I didn't bow down and worship any statues th this morning. And idolatry seems so primitive, and, and yet idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible, and it should raise some caution signals in our lives. Idolatry comes into every book of the Bible. More than 50 of the laws in the, the first five books of the Bible deal with this issue of the heart. In Judaism, it was one of only four sins which carried the death penalty uh, with it. So as we look today at this topic of idolatry, we're terming it avoiding distractions, things that can vie for the throne of our heart, things that can pull our focus off of God, and, and they don't have to be statues. They can take many different forms. Uh, if we sometimes do our kneeling and our bowing with our imaginations, with our checkbooks, with our search engines, we sometimes bow and kneel before our calendars. So what if I told you that every sin that you are struggling with, every discouragement you are dealing with, even the lack of purpose in living, it all comes back to this idolatry. And so we do need this message today. We must avoid the worship of modern idols that would distract our allegiance to putting God first. So how do we define an idol? Well, an idol is anything that takes our focus off of God. Anything that, and that covers the often overlooked, more subtle forms of idolatry. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but in, in some cases, it could be your spouse, your children, your hobby, your career, your security, your fitness, your fame, your recreation. It could be travel. It could be computers. It could be golf. It could be money. It could be entertainment. It could be shopping. It could be your house. It could be popularity. It could be a car, a power, status, a favorite sports team, a TV program, movies, music, Mother Earth, superstitions, horoscopes, worry, crystals, even yourself. Now, if you didn't hear something on that list that has taken your focus off of God, then don't worry. There's a, a special message coming for you when we study the ninth commandment, do not lie. <laughs> Even something as benign as a baseball card collection could become an idol. Growing up as a faithful Reds fan, I, I, I had a decent baseball card collection that I kept in a shoebox. And as an adult, I wanted to look at my collection and perhaps cash in on some of my lucrative potential treasures. And I was unable to locate a shoebox at my parents' house. So I began inquiring, asked a few questions, and no one had seen it. And I knew I hadn't gotten rid of it. And so when I asked my mom if she had thrown out my shoebox, she maintained her innocence. And from time to time over the decades that followed, I would occasionally introduce a new line of questioning and 
hopes of discovering what actually happened to my missing baseball card collection. The topic became a closed subject when my mom, still maintaining her innocence, gave me a t-shirt that said, once I was a millionaire, then my mom threw my baseball cards away. <laughs> this was not a special custom print job. It was an actual copyrighted, pre-printed shirt, patented in 1990. And apparently, this same discussion had taken place in some other households around our fair country. So anything, even a baseball card collection, can become an idol if it distracts us from keeping God as our first priority. Commandment number two prevents making an idol out of anything, a possession, a relationship, an accomplishment. Nothing should supplant God. And idolatry is an attempt to remake God into something he is not. The greatest honor God gave us was when he made us in his own image. We studied about that at Vacation Bible School this week. That lesson came through loud and clear. The greatest dishonor that we could give him is to try to remake him in our image. First thing I want us to, to see today is don't serve idols. Listen to Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. First of all, idols deceive. Patrick Morley summed it, summed it up this way. We want to pursue the God we want instead of the God who is. We want to be shallow in our understanding of God. We want him to be more of a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. It is sensing a need for God, but only on our terms. It is wanting the God we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of him too. It is God relative instead of God absolute. Bill Hybels wrote, not long ago on a flight to California, I sat next to a girl who told me she was flying or was living with her, her boyfriend, had a drinking problem, frequently used cocaine, and Throughout the course of our three-hour conversation, she made casual references and, and other aspects of her life that were both illegal and immoral, and finally the conversation turned to Christianity. I asked her, how do you square your lifestyle with God's will and his wisdom and, and his word? Without a second thought, she responded with the words, all true Christians have grown to know and hate. Well, my God is the grandfather type who loves me and takes care of me and tells me I'm okay. He knows that boys will be boys and girls will be girls, and he doesn't care much what I do. It's so much easier for us to change God than it is to conform to his will. But the concept of a downsized, handmade God may sound appealing to some, because such a God is, is localized. You, you can limit him to a temple or a sanctuary. You can carry him around with you. You can put him in your pocket. You can behave any way you choose when you are not there. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. In the Old Testament, God's dwelling was in the tabernacle, this portable worship tent. And then the temple was built, and God's residence was in the temple, this magnificent, ornate building constructed in his honor. But in the New Testament, it changed again. And while we want to treat our building with respect and be good stewards of it, God doesn't live here. Not in the, in the sense that this is his home or residence in the building. In fact, church buildings weren't constructed until the third century. And so what shifted is God's not here. This isn't God's house. This is God's house. The Holy Spirit in, in, inhabits us. We are the ones that are the reservoirs housing God's Spirit. We see this dramatic shift where instead of living in a fixed worship facility, God wants to live in Christians. Your body is a temple housing God. And so Christians, you and I are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Each Christian is a walking, talking receptacle of God's presence. When I was growing up, if, if I were doing something wrong, the last person I wanted to see would be my father. When doing wrong, the, the reason I wanted to avoid him was because he was fair, and he would punish me for my disobedience. And there's even a, a term that psychologists identify as an avoidance response. When we're doing wrong, we want to avoid that authority figure because we feel shame and, and, and guilty. Our sinning distances us from our Heavenly Father. Remember in the Garden of Eden? Again, we studied this week in, in VBS. There existed this close personal relationship. God was available. There was no separation. There was no distance. He was totally accessible. And Adam and Eve lived in this close fellowship, this proximity with God. But sin disrupted that. It, it caused separation. It created a distance between us and our Heavenly Father. And sin always causes a separation and a distance when we're out of step with our Heavenly Father. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I, I took them out of the by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's from Jeremiah 31. Listen to Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them and be their God. What this represents in heaven is a return all the way back to Eden in God's original design. To, to be our God in a, a personal, intimate, firsthand respect. Not a distant deity, not a creator, but, but instead a creator who wants to be your constant companion. He both deserves and demands to be first in your life. And so the second command flies in the face of America's politically correct worldview. The, the popular multiculturalism of our day suggests that one belief system is as, as good as another, and it claims that we should live and let live and just be tolerant of, of everybody and everything. But let's look again at, at Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and following. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I think had David known the consequences of his decision to have an affair with Bathsheba, he never would have gone through with it. David had he known how painful and expensive that choice would be, it wouldn't have been a difficult decision at all. He would have left that rooftop that night, taken a cold shower, gone back to bed instead of doing what he did. But as it was, he had to stand by and watch the utter devastation of his family and children throughout the years. It broke his heart. He wept many, many tears over that one quick, impulsive decision. You can miss the, the serious implications here. The, the passage says that the way you and I respond to this command of no idols will leave a mark on the lives of those who follow after us. It doesn't mean that because of my sins that my children or grandchildren will be punished. The emphasis is always on personal responsibility in scripture. But no matter what your parents or grandparents may have been, you won't answer for their sins, but you may face some consequences, some splashback because of the choices they made that could, could affect your life for many years. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow the gate that leads to life. Does that sound exclusive or narrow or intolerant? Yes, because it is. God's grace is broadly available to all people, but that's totally inclusive. But many choose not to obey him. Many fail to appreciate this valuable, free, undeserved gift of salvation. Instead, they opt to exclude themselves from the presence of a holy God. They don't want their father following them around or intruding into their lives. And that tolerant, unrepentant sinning is the distance that is created with God. You know, it said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's one name under heaven given whereby we must be saved. Idols and false images rob the days of our lives from us. They leave us with nothing, no peace, no satisfaction, no hope. So what is our, our definition of an idol again? Idols are anything that take our focus off of God. And so 
Idols deceive. And I want you to realize that idols destroy. Years ago, we had some elderly neighbors who were wonderful people, and they took just great care of their lawn. And one day I was outside, and they called me over privately and informed me that we had some rhododendron spreading beyond our house. I thought, great. We're just renting, and now it's happened on our watch. The plague of the black thumb has, has struck. And uh, unaware of the outbreak and concerned that our yard had been ravaged by the harmful effects of rhododendron, I, I followed them back dutifully as they led me and showed me this beautiful blooming plant of a rhododendron. Only then did I fully understand rhododendron does not destroy. It is not to be feared or avoided. And in our text, God is making it clear that false idols do destroy. He was warning they are to be feared. They are to be avoided. In verse 5 of our text, God states that he is a jealous God. Isn't that kind of an odd statement? God? Jealous? It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I remember we were together with our cousins and uh, we were having devotions one night before going to bed. And, and so uh, as, as that was happening, we did kind of like a communion today. When Joe had us call out a, a name or a word or something that, that came to mind that we associated with communion. So they were talking about attributes of God's personality, and we were to t mention a name. And so, you know, mention a word. So powerful, loving, forgiving. Uh, one of our younger cousins wanted to participate, so he made a contribution. And he said, jealous. And my brother and I just cracked up. <laughs> we, were, we were laughing. We weren't very polite. We just, we thought this was hilarious, this, this goofy reference that, that he had made. And our dad quickly pointed out, boys, he's exactly right. The, the Bible says God is a jealous God. So we went, oh, okay, oh, oops, uh, all right, uh, uh, yeah, we knew that, all right. And, and our younger cousin knew more about the attributes of God than, than we did. This attribute of being a jealous God isn't some kind of petty, insecure behavior. It represents the noblest, most mature, committed, encompassing love that wants the best for us. God knows that these facsimile figures, these gods, little g, are, are not real. They're not living. They're not valuable. He wants us to enjoy an exclusive relationship, not a cheapened, diminished, passing affair of the moment. He doesn't want us to be distracted from the purpose for which we were created to love God and enjoy him forever. You see, the Ten Commandments are much like a marriage covenant between God and his people. In the marriage vows, a bride promises, I will keep myself to you and to you alone until death separates us. And God doesn't want to share us with Satan. He desires, demands, and deserves to be the total object of our affection. God watches us closely because he knows what is before us. He knows the issues of our lives better than we do. He understands the long-range implications of our every thought, our every action. He sees our lives in total. He sees the day of our departure and the, and the future generations stretching out even beyond us. He knows how one foolish, selfish decision can affect not only our lives, but the lives of our, our sons and daughters 
and their sons and daughters for generations. He sees how those I love could potentially be impacted by what I do or, or fail to do. And so because of these things, God is jealous when we flirt with destructive images. The world says, seek influence, seek wealth, seek power, seek pleasure. And God says, put me first. If you live indifferently to the things of the Lord, you will continually give in to every suggestion of the flesh. If you have a love affair with materialism and acquiring things at, at any cost, then you'll be chasing after empty, hollow images for the rest of your life. The, the consequences for your family will be great. The simple fact is, is none of us lives and simply for ourselves. That's not the way God wired the universe. Our, our decisions have ramifications and, and affect others. So it's becoming clear why God said, don't make any idols. God knew that if we put the things of this world first, then everything we love could be affected. So he gives the positive side of the coin too. Verse 6, he says, if you humbly bow before me, if you put me first, then thousands of people will be affected by the righteousness in your life, beyond the reach of our eyes, beyond our expectations, and even our imaginations. And so that's the, the, the next part of the message is do serve God. You know, don't serve idols, do serve God. God delights. A, a doctor told about an event when he drove his daughter to school and his stethoscope was on the front seat between them and his young daughter picked it up, put it on, began playing with it. And in a moment of paternal pride, he, he swelled thinking, my daughter wants to follow in my footsteps in the family business. And his illusions of grandeur were given a, a reality check when she spoke into the instrument and said, Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? <laughs> you know, many times in life we start out with these lofty goals and noble intentions only to become easily distracted, diverted from our purpose. So the topic today is avoid distractions. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up succinctly. It says, the chief purpose of mankind is to love God and enjoy him forever. That's it. Love God and enjoy him forever. We looked last week at a verse that comes up again today, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Focus on pleasing God. He'll take care of you. God delivers. If you enjoy redneck humor, you, you may have heard the joke about the guy that, that called 911. And he said, I, I need to report that uh, Emma Sue passed, uh, <coughs> passed out and uh, we need some help. So the operator said to, to Bubba, okay, we'll send someone right, right on over. Uh, where are you located? Asked the 911 operator. Well, we're at the end of Eucalyptus Drive replied Bubba. The operator said, can you spell that for me? After a long pause, Bubba suggested, how about if we just drag her over to Oak Street and you pick her up there? <laughs> we often want the easy way, don't we? And to be honest, breaking the cycle of sin in our lives doesn't occur easily. But God will deliver us if we rely on him and allow his principles 
a work in our lives. Near the end of the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, one of the final books uh, written in the Bible, John the Apostle of Love cautions us in 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, that's how he always referred to the Christians. He was an older gentleman in his 90s, we presume, at, at this time. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Commentator Matthew Henry explains, Since you know the true God and are in him, let your light and love guard you against all that is advanced in opposition to him or in competition with him. Cleave to him in faith and in love and in constant obedience, in opposition to all things that would alienate your mind and heart from God. What images in our world today would rise up to challenge our love relationship with the Son of God? Material things, maybe? Jesus said to his disciples in, in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. Uh, he was speaking in that instance of a, a spirit of materialism that grips the soul and demands our energies and devotion. Paul said in Colossians 3, 5, that, that even greediness is idolatry. He said, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And the Bible might have also listed any of the other gods of, of this world, false images, the power, pleasure, fame, status. When it comes to the whole purpose of my life to chase one of those images, then I've already slipped into idolatry. I have given it the best of my time, my talents, my treasure, my energies. My very life is invested in it. And that's what a God is. When you worship a God, you basically surrender your life to it. And the good news is that God delivers. He can deliver each of us from the idols that we have allowed to take up residency in our lives. And that it involves removing the idol and and God will help you to do that. I don't know if you realize, but the, the human heart, your heart beats 100,000 times uh, every day. It pumps 2,000 gallons of blood every day. And, and everything flows from the heart, so it must be protected. It, it must be guarded. And that's true physically for the organ of our heart, and, and it's true spiritually for the heart, the center of our being. In, in Hebrew culture, the heart was seen as a metaphor for the core of, of personality. It was the spiritual hub, the, the center of life. Your life flowed out from its orientation. And the angels, the, the ancients knew that you could lightly touch the wrist and feel a, a soft beating. We, we call it the pulse. That same pulse could be found in your neck and, and, and elsewhere. But place the hand over the heart, which is the center of a person, and that beating was even more powerful. It stood as a reason that everything flowed from the heart. And to the Hebrew, not only blood, but personality, motives, the emotions, will, all originated from this seat of our emotions. 
So here's an example of the Hebrew idea. As water reflects the face, so life reflects the heart. Proverbs 27, verse 19. The heart is the truth of your identity, and that's why the gods fight so fiercely for every inch of it. So today's a a day for personal inventory. I I can't judge your heart, and and you can't judge mine. We all have to do a a self-examination to be sure that nothing is supplanting God as the, the primary in our lives. And what I want us to do is go into a time of prayer here at the end. Dear God, we realize that there are many gods competing for our attention, for our allegiance. And Lord, that our entire world is trying to draw us off of of that focus on you. And so, may we take time today, this second of the commands, to just focus and center our, our lives on on keeping the main thing the main thing and and, and keeping you as the main thing. Lord, prevent any distraction, whether good or evil, from taking our our focus away from you. Lord, we we each uh, look deeply into our own lives right now and we ask for your grace, for your forgiveness, for times we have have worshipped lesser gods. And when we have bowed our, our knee to to false, temporary, fleeting pursuits. So, Lord, today may we rise from this time of prayer to to center our our lives on you again and to live for you to the very best of our ability this week is our prayer in Jesus' name.